Hey y'all, welcome to the Letting the Light In podcast. I'm Camry, Cam Jam, KJP, or Cams, depending on the season we met or the nickname you're most comfortable with. Honestly, this podcast is a little selfish because so much light comes into my life talking to others and marveling at all that can occur. It's my earnest prayer that a little light is let into your day through this conversation. Today I'm pinching myself with the privilege of having um, one of my favorite authors that I just recently discovered, um, Nafisa Thompson Spires. Um, I stumbled upon her work two weeks ago at the library. I struck gold with her latest book. It's called The Heads of the Colored People. And y'all, it is incredible. It's a collection of short stories that has just been heralded with praise. Um, I'm so excited to have her on today to talk all things writing and just um, where her characters came from and things that she's loving these days. And so I'm so thankful to have her on and um, I'm excited for y'all to hear this conversation. Hey, Nafisa. Hey. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, so like I, like I mentioned, um, incredible author and I just couldn't get enough of your latest book. I wanted to read it again as soon as I finish. Um, can you tell us a little bit about just where the, um, first of all, was it always a short story? Why a short story? Did you, did you want to go in that direction to begin with? Actually, I started out really trying to write long form. I did an MFA program where I was trying to work on novels, even though most people were trying to write short stories. And there was something about once I found the story, Heads of the Colored People, Four Fancy Sketches, Two Chalk Outlines, and No Apology. It's a long title. (laughs) Once I wrote that story, I realized that a collection might actually be possible for me and might be worth pursuing. It kind of helped me shape my other ideas. Okay. So it sounds like writing has kind of been in your blood. It's always something that you've loved. Is that true? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. And so you went to, you said you did an MFA program and you did undergrad at University of Illinois. Is that true? No, I did my undergrad in California, Cal State, San Bernardino. Oh, you did? And then I got a PhD at Vanderbilt. And then I taught for several years and then I did an MFA. Got it. After being a professor for a while. Okay. Where'd you teach? Um, all over. I was, after I finished my dissertation, I was waiting for my husband to finish his, and so we needed to stay in Nashville. So I taught at Vanderbilt for a year as an adjunct, and then I was one at Cumberland University, which is a very different university than Vanderbilt, <laughs> but still in Tennessee, and then at an HBCU, Tennessee State University. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Okay, so um, obviously you had a lot of life that you lived before writing this book. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, just growing up in Southern California, and kind of how that influenced your writing? Yeah, I, like some of the characters, was often one of the few black people in a lot of spaces. So I grew up in a relatively diverse neighborhood, Right. Um, but I went to school in a really white neighborhood so I went to school about half an hour away from where I actually lived because my parents didn't want me to go to public school they were both at that time public school teachers and they were just afraid of things happening to me so they sent me to this Christian private school that was predominantly white okay and had a lot of issues with um racial sensitivity and microaggressions and also hostility downright Mm -hmm. hostility Mm -hmm. so um a lot of the stories are kind of inspired by the ways I became observant of how race works in those kinds of spaces and also how gender and other issues work. Youth. I was also um, not just one of the only black girls, but I was the youngest in my grade every year because I had skipped a grade. I was the shortest uh-huh. and I was bossy. So I had a lot of things that kind of made me a target. <laughs> yes. 
Okay, so you, did you go to the school like K through 12 or was this your only schooling experience? It was most of my schooling experience. I went to that school from third grade to 11th grade and then I begged my parents to let me go to public school for my senior year, Okay, which was actually quite fun for me. I bet, I bet. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What was the biggest change that you noticed? Well, public school was huge, first of all. Right. So going from a tiny Christian school that had like, I think we only had maybe 200 students max. Okay. Um, going from a school that small where I literally knew everyone, everyone knew me, and we had known each other since elementary school, and where there was a sort of click where if you weren't there since kindergarten, you were never really part of the crowd, even if you'd been there for, you know, eight to ten years. Exactly. Um, and then going to a school where none of that mattered, which, a school where it was huge, where no individual could actually be a target because you couldn't see everyone. Right. Um, and where there were so many different options for friendship and for self-expression, I just immediately found my people at public school. Yeah. And they were like-minded people. They were, you know, heathens, as, as my parents were weird <laughs> I would interact with. They were just other kids who were smart and liked to read and did the kinds of things that I was interested in doing. Yes. And I also found that it was much easier to date. I had gone through years at private school feeling like, you know, I was never going to have a boyfriend in right. public school. I immediately had a million people, not a million, but lots of people <laughs> who were very much interested in me. Yeah. And so it was really affirming. That's that's incredible. I'm listening to you. I'm just nodding my head profusely because I can resonate so min- so much with parts of your story. Um, similar to you, I went to a small private school, predominantly white. Um, we actually only had 65 a class, so even oh. smaller than the one that you went to. But I, I will never forget going to college. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill. And I'll never forget one of my um, mom's good friends who I babysat for. She was like, Camry, you're just, you're just going to, you're really going to find a boyfriend in college. Like guys will be interested in you then. And I think I internalized similar to you that just, you know, white men weren't interested or that I just wasn't dateable because had never like ever been shown interest in that area. And so I think I just even internalized that too about myself that I was undesirable or that my body wasn't right. Or, um, so I, would like to agree with all that you said and I'm unlike you was not able to experience senior year in private school or a public school but I went to a public university which I think um similar to you opened my eyes a ton so so you went from high school in California to then undergrad there then why Illinois well there was Nashville in between oh sorry yes why Vanderbilt um they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, okay. basically. Um, fully funded PhD program. Oh, amazing. People I wanted to work with there. Okay. And I met my husband there, so that was nice as Even well. Even better, yes. And was he yeah. doing a writing program as well? We were both doing an English PhD program. We were actually the only two black people in our program. Oh, we were trying not to date each other um, because we thought that was lame. Yeah. But we ended up bonding over mutual grievances, and it worked out pretty well. I love that. That's awesome. So how long have y'all been married? Um, we just celebrated 12 years in May. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. And you, so you lived in Nashville for several years and then where are y'all located now? We're in Illinois and that's because he got a tenure track job at the U of I and then I now have a tenure track job at the U of I as well. Amazing. That's so cool. If I'm ever in Illinois, I know who I'm hunting down to hang out. Um, (laughs) so your characters, extremely well-developed, um, very deep. I love the way that you use humor in almost every single one of the short stories. Are your characters based on anyone? Sometimes they're based, they're kind of composites of people I've seen. I like to really, um, 
observe people. So I often talk about it in terms of spy notebook. I modeled a lot of my life after Harriet the Spy, yes. and I carry around these notebooks and actually, you know, think about how people actually speak and what they're doing. Um, and so sometimes they're just sketches of many different people I've seen. Sometimes they're completely made up, but the voices might be from people I've actually interacted with. And then some of them, I would say Fatima is the one who's most close to my own life, but not not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. Okay, okay. That's awesome. And she's the one that started through several stories. Is that right? Right. Okay. I remember that. Um, so your process of writing, is it, would you say it's daily? Is it a certain time of the day? Is it the same amount of time every day? Talk, us, talk to us a little bit about how you wrote this book. I always believe in writing what you can when you can. And so I think adhering to really, really tight schedules can work for some people but for a lot of people it just increases the anxiety that's already kind of inherent to writing right so I believe in low stakes writing if you can train yourself to write for a few minutes a day in this sort of free write type of approach where you're not necessarily trying to pop out pages then it's easier to find spaces to write all the time and I also think writing when the stakes are low is the huge part of that so I get some of my best writing done when I'm not supposed to be writing in Uh, faculty meetings or other situations Um, because it's almost like doodling you're just letting your mind go free in those spaces and I can get a lot done but I do also have a a relatively disciplined routine and that's that I try to write on the days when I'm not teaching so I usually would teach Tuesday Thursday at the university and then write Monday Wednesday Friday okay for at least a little while okay So like I mentioned um, when I was introducing you, I've just been pouring over reviews that the book has gotten, and I mean, they are glowing. It is, I mean, as as they should be. Um, I'm wondering, as you, as these reviews are coming out and as you're having conversations and being interviewed, do you have to manage expectations a little bit? Do you have hopes and dreams for this book? Kind of how are you feeling as the book has come out and people are talking about it and buzzing about it? How, How have you managed that? I definitely have had hopes and dreams for the book and lots of <laughs> prayers. And I'm so grateful. I thank God every day for all the great things that have happened with it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a person who has had to learn that I don't need to read everything. Um, yeah. That was something I was really anxious about at the beginning. Should I read all the reviews? What right. should I do if I get something negative? And I just internalize the negative way too much and hold on to it. Even if the negative is like 1%. Right. So I've, only read things for the most part that either my agents and um, publicists have sent to me. They kind of curate this list of things called All Concern where they send me the publicity or I'll Google myself and only read things that I know are positive from the preview. Right. And if it seems like it's going in a negative direction, I just don't even mess with it. Yes. <laughs> That's probably a good rule of thumb. I um, I read the article Nafisa Thompson Spires is taking black literature in a whole new direction. Um, where you talked about when you were growing up, how your family was kind of viewed as the Huxtables, you were compared to them and maybe labeled by relatives as bougie. Um, I want to hear kind of your thoughts now that you've been able to process and even write a little bit about that in the book. Um, looking back, what was that like growing up? Do you feel like you internalized it? Was this something negative or positive back then when, when they were saying things like that to you? I think they meant it in a negative way, but that it was almost a point of pride for yeah, me. Yeah. 
I mean, who wouldn't, well, I, I do know, because I teach television studies, that a lot of people have had a negative reaction to the Huxtables and felt like they were inauthentic and all these things, but I thought that that was aspirational as a kid, like, right. who wouldn't want to have a family that looked that fun and that stable, and I felt like my family was that fun and that stable. Right. With some distance, I can see that my family's also dysfunctional in a lot of ways <laughs> that I didn't understand when I was younger. Right. But still, I have two parents who loved me, who did their best, who... Um, are highly educated and right. kept growing in their careers and who took care of us and so just that stability and that love and support did make a big difference in my life and it, sadly a lot of my extended family didn't have the same experience so right. I could see where they would feel that it was you know something to poke fun at right no kidding it, as you and your husband I don't know if y'all are considering having kids or as you think about um, that in y'all's future, if it is, would you put your kids in a similar situation that you were in as far as schooling is concerned? This is something my husband and I have talked about a lot (laughs) because he is from Jackson, Mississippi, and he went to public schools that were actually really good. His mom's also a teacher or was a teacher and his dad was a school principal. So he had a kind of parallel upbringing to me, but the public school version of it. And he was in IB programs, international baccalaureate and, you know, he was the valedictorian. He right. never had that sort of scary right. upbringing that my parents were afraid I was going to get. Right. So he's totally pro-public school. And for my one year, I think I'm pretty pro-public school, too. Right. Um, we're also, thank God, in an area where it would be pretty easy for us to raise our kids in good schools. But if I lived in a different space, I, I can't say what I would do. Right. You know? Yeah, that's so true. I think um, we were in Minneapolis a couple weeks ago visiting good friends, and um, somebody, a local, was explaining that they just really don't have very many private schools because the public school system is amazing. And unfortunately, the part of the country that we live in here, the public schools are not great. And similar to you, I'm extremely pro um, public school. I was able to teach in a public school for two years after college and have just seen the, um, I think, again, going to school in a private school setting, um, uh, was afforded an incredible education, but just missed a ton of the diverse elements that I have experienced post schooling. And so I just really would love that for our child and for other children, if we're able to have them. And so I, I agree with you. It's kind of a million dollar question right now that we're not going to have to answer until he's of school age, but I'm sure when it happens that we will have to make that decision. So do, do you think you'll be, how long will y'all be in Illinois for the programs that y'all are in? Um, indefinitely. I mean, my husband has tenure. Uh, I'll have tenure soon, Okay. hopefully. So okay, nice. Probably for a while. Okay, that's great. So switching gears just a little bit, um, I read your piece for the Paris Review um, titled On Telling Ugly Stories, Writing with a Chronic Illness, um, which you document your... Um, endometriosis, which I just, of course, was beautifully written. Um, did how, how do writing these, these types of articles go? Did the Paris Review contact you? Was it something that you had wanted to express um, for a while? How did this come about? Well, generally, when you have a book coming out, if you have a good agent, um, or if you're just really spunky and can do it on your own, there's a push to get some nonfiction essays out okay. that will kind of cross-promote the book. So we planned for me to try to write some pieces ahead of time. The Paris Review contacted me to write a different piece about comic book conventions that didn't turn out so well. <laughs> I, I write too academically, and so we kind of dropped that piece. But then um, I wanted to write this piece about endometriosis, and it just happened that not just Beagleman, who was working with me on the other piece, loved it and wanted to place it there. 
So my agent placed it for me. Okay. But Naja and I worked on it together after I kind of had a draft. Okay. It's beautiful. How long did it take you to write? Thanks. I wrote it really quickly, actually, and I wrote it kind of under duress. I was I was distressed by my own symptoms and things that were plaguing me and fear about the surgery that I was about to have, and so I popped it out kind of as self-reflection on those things, and I think it turned out well enough that I wanted to send it out. Okay. So I think probably two weeks max. Okay. Wow. It's, oh my gosh, it's incredible. I loved Love just your honesty and um, even the points that you made about, which I never really thought about this before, but the points that you make about um, being black and just the social um, stigma maybe around pain and how um, just socially it might be expected that black people can handle more pain and so painkillers aren't given as frequently or without judgment. And um, just reading that, I was like, wow, I've never really thought about that before but it makes a ton of sense has that been something that you've been aware of for quite a while since grad school yeah I've been aware of that sort of myth of the strong black woman that bell hooks and lots of other writers have dealt with and it's something that bothers me because it's sort of like and I I don't want to poke fun at the idea of black girl magic but I think that it's the new iteration of this right that black women in order to affirm ourselves because we've been so maligned for so long right um we come up with these things like the strong black woman or the black girl magic but i think those things also make it hard for people to be empathetic towards us because they already see us as these mythical creatures in some way right and so they kind of are a double-edged sword right unfortunately right you talk a lot too about making peace with your body in this um piece that you wrote and that is something currently that I am dealing with and kind of walking through. And so it was wonderful to read your words. Um, what's that process continued to look like as you um, have been diagnosed and as you've had surgery and kind of made some lifestyle changes? Um, it's an everyday process for sure. Yeah. I'm still dealing with, um, I'm healing from a surgery that I just had in May and having to take it one day at a time and kind of really practice being kind to myself because okay there are things I want to do that I can't necessarily do yet. Um, I'm grateful to have a support system that reminds me all the time, like, you just had surgery. You really shouldn't feel guilty about not doing X or Y. Right. But definitely it's an everyday, one day at a time kind of thing. Okay. Is um, Were you vegan b- before your diagnosis? Yeah, I'd been vegan for at least, I've been vegan for 20 years this summer, so I think I'd been vegan for... 16, 17 years before I was diagnosed with endo. Okay, that is incredible. First of all, I didn't even know being a vegan existed back. That is amazing. How did you decide to do that? It's really just being a picky eater. I was a vegetarian since I was 10 years old, um, and people thought, oh, this is just a funny phase, and they, you know, tried to talk me out of it, but my parents in particular were afraid that I was going to be malnourished because I basically lived on corn nuts and, like, (laughs) you know, cool ranch Doritos as a child um and so they bought me all these books on veganism I mean and vegetarianism and the the books were basically propaganda books that tell you about all the politics of eating dairy and what's in your meat and what we're doing to other countries and how we're sending them our pus-filled dairy and that stuff just made me not want to eat anything so it kind of backfired on my parents and I became vegan instead of going back to meat okay I love that I um 
I have been pescatarian since my freshman year of high school. And it's funny, when I was pregnant, I was um, anemic and all of a sudden started craving meat again, which was necessary because I kept fainting, which was terrible. But then as soon as I had him, didn't crave it at all anymore. And it, I think it's amazing when you tell people you don't eat meat. And I'm sure you get this reaction from people all the time when you tell them that you're vegan. People just can't believe it. But it's amazing how quickly your body, um, like its desires and cravings change when you just stop eating a certain thing. Um, I think it's, have you seen positive results? Like, have you felt, have you noticed like a change in how you feel or like energy? I don't know because it's been, I mean, I've been vegan through all of my formative years, literally so since true. I was 15. That's so true. So it's been so long. I'm not sure. I don't really have anything to compare it to. Right. What I about? Do, I don't recommend it necessarily. Okay. I think some people are meant to eat animal products right. and I don't judge them for doing it. Right. What about your husband? Does he eat vegan as well? No, my husband eats um, everything, and he's very happy to do so. I love it. I love that. Okay, I want to read a quote from one of your um, interviews because I just think it represents everything that I wanted to just give you a standing ovation for in the book. I wanted to represent black characters who are marginalized in the white world, but also even marginalized within blackness. People who are accused of sounding white because of the way they speak, people who are really nerdy, a different angle of black identity, Thompson Spire said. That's a thing I think a lot of us know well, but I haven't read too many stories about those kinds of people. So I read that and was like, oh my goodness, I wish I could have read that when I was in middle school, in high school, at this private school with all these white people who kept telling me all the time, you just sound so white. You know, you talk white, you act, and all this, and I'm like, okay, just because I love to read books or I do well in school or I like this certain type of music, like that doesn't mean that I'm not black. And so reading that, I was like, this is amazing. Like I needed this. And so I just want to thank you for um, writing this story and, or these stories and just for um, the foresight to know that people needed this. And I just hope that people read these stories and are encouraged. And, and even if people aren't black, um, a lot of my, a large majority of my listeners aren't black, but I hope that they would take the time to um, then be able to understand those of us who have kind of had the story that both of us have had. Um, so I just want to thank you and thank you for doing this interview. We'll do the five questions as we wrap up. But um, if people want to keep, get in touch with you or keep up with your work, where is the best place to find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at T is for Thompson. Okay. And I also have a website, NafisaThompsonSpires.com. No hyphen. Okay. Just Nafisa Thompson Spires. Okay, perfect. And I'll link that too when um, the show goes live. Okay. Here's the five questions. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you were taking yourself out on a date, your husband can attend if you would like him to. Um, what would you do? kind of lame and cliche but i i do love long walks on the beach especially at night <laughs> i love firelit beaches like bonfires yes um especially when they're relatively private or pretty deserted that's one of my favorite things that's awesome do you, are california beaches your favorite mostly i've okay. been to some other really nice beaches i actually kind of am starting to like east coast beaches too because you get grass and sand and we don't really get grass in california beaches very true Love that perspective. Okay, someone or something you never get tired of? Avocados. Ooh, good one. Do you like it, them in all form or just straight avocado? Pretty much all form. I used to only love guacamole, but now I could eat plain avocado too. I love that. I think it's that good. So good for you too. 
something, podcast, book, TV show, workout class, anything that you find yourself constantly talking about or recommending to people? Definitely Degrassi. I'm obsessed with Canadian TV. (laughs) And my alternate is another Canadian show from the 90s called Ready or Not, which doesn't get enough acclaim, but is beautifully written. And I I watch it, rewatch the whole series every summer. Really? Mm -hmm. It's like my ritual. How many seasons are there? They're five, but they're short. They're like 13 episodes each, so you could totally watch 65 half-hour episodes over the course of a summer. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. And Netflix? No, unfortunately, you can only do them boot. Like, most of them are actually <laughs> on YouTube now. Okay. But I have my own copies of the show because it's been my favorite show for a long I time. I love that. I yeah. love it. Okay, would your high school self believe you are where you are now? I think yes and no. I... I was, was always sort of overly confident that I was going to be successful, mm-hmm. whatever that meant. I wanted to be a family court judge, then I wanted to be a chemist. I sucked at chemistry, <laughs> and then I'm too sensitive to be a judge. But I knew I was going to be something, whatever that meant. And so, yes, they would believe that, but I don't think I was prepared for how wonderful this year has been, oh, thank wow. God. Yeah. So there's that. That's amazing. Okay, last one. What does letting the light in mean to you? Right now, I think it really does mean practicing self-care and kind of recalibrating my inner voice to be kind to myself because I am highly critical and I'm dealing with some limitations on my body as we talked about. So just taking it a day at a time and being kinder. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I so appreciate your time and your honesty and just sharing your work with my listeners. Um, I have no doubt that They will be huge fans, and I wish you all the best in what is to come. I just cannot wait to follow you, and um, like all the articles have said, you are quite a big deal. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And your baby is so cute. Oh, thank you. Thank you. He's pretty fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye.